Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Siegel, a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the author of Intraconnected. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. Chili Pad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. How do we actually, with due speed, because this is a timely issue, start to live in modern culture, which has taken over the planet basically, live in a way that is really about the truth of who we are, that we are a me and we are a we, and that if we lived that way, we wouldn't treat each other as enemies we would treat each other as relatives. You know, you don't get along with every relative in the same way, but if they're in your family, they're your family. And if we then saw all of nature as the family of nature, you know, we would treat earth not like a trash can, but a sanctuary. And and we would do this together. And we are incredibly collaborative. We're incredibly creative. And yes, we can use competition, but what we can do in our competition is make it so we're competing to really deal with, you know, diseases and famine and all the problems we face. So when you win the competition, everybody benefits. So says Dr. Dan Siegel, a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center. As an interpersonal neurobiologist, Dan is focused on the creation of self. And his latest book, Interconnected, Mui, which is me plus we, as the integration of self, identity, and belonging, takes his lifelong pursuit to understand the Venn diagram between personal reality and collective identity even farther. In it, he explores questions of consciousness, the importance of connection, and the world of quantum physics as it relates to our relationship with the external world. For Dan, the science of energy which animates us all, is the study of the continuum of possibility into probability. Okay, 
Let's get to our conversation. So tell me about the impetus for this book. Like, What was the big question that you were trying to answer? You know, the big question I was trying to address in the book Interconnected was what does it mean to define a self in our modern society? And how might that way that we define the self actually be creating problems in our lives, individually and families and our communities, even on the planet. And so it was a journey to try to look at a simple word, you know, self, that seems pretty self-evident, but it turns out to be really fascinating and also formative in what happens to us. So that's, that's basically how the book got started. And I love that you're this whole thing in some ways, although it seems like the story of you falling off a horse and knocking yourself unconscious and losing your sense of self was a story that you filed away or an experience that you had that was powerful, but that wasn't the focus of your career. And yet it's the pivot point for this book, right? Like you sort of re-came to it. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, even... Even in the initial writing of this book, that was like had no place in the first draft. And then I tried out a different approach and it wasn't really there. Then it was a like a 300 page rhyming fictional story of a person named Sam. And Sam does have a, an accident into Sam's adolescence, the same age I did. And I said, well, this is interesting. This rhyme is coming out of me and Sam is having the same accident I had. So Maybe there's something there. And then when that book didn't turn into a book that was going to be published by the publisher, it, you know, then it was going back to it and extracting the science on each of these episodes of Sam's life. And then it became pretty clear that, you know, that was even though because it was chronological and so towards the adolescent period of it was a lifespan rhyme, you know, it was it, it seemed I needed to put that more toward the beginning of the book to say that my personal encounter with losing a narrative separate individualized self may give us little hints into the idea that the self is constructed. It's not some automatic thing. Yeah. And I think that we can all understand conceptually this idea of, you know, you hear in my spiritual adolescence when I really didn't have any grounding in that world at all. And I would hear things like, we're all one. I'm like, that's nice. I guess like when we die, we return to some sort of source point. Like that sounds comforting. But this idea this that, that you're teasing out in the book of, no, we're all one. We're having these separate, what seem like separate distinct experiences, but we're all sort of a coalescing of energy and potential in a physical body. I mean, it's very heady. And I think people get scared, right? Because we're all very attached to who we are. Yeah. And, and how do you tease out, like, no, you still exist and we're part of a larger system. That's exactly it, Elise. It is a big deal. In fact, when I read the audio version of interconnected, the audio engineers started getting really spacey as I was reading the book and we had to stop and see what was going on that he couldn't do the engineering. So I had to explain to him what the book was about and, you know, where we were going in the book and so that he could actually do his engineering instead of having the book be a transformative, you know, expansive experience, which it was for him and hopefully will be for readers. And that was kind of the challenge of writing the book, which is partly probably why it came out initially as a rhyme, you know, to really try to get at ways we have these top-down filters, these things we've learned that are kind of like constructive filters that say, oh yeah, yeah, this is right now who Elise is, this is who Dan is. But then to open those up, even in the course of reading a book, you know, that's that's what my my hope was, was that it would be a both a conversation, meaning a turning together, turning our attention towards what is the self, but also the self of the reader could actually begin to expand as they were reading. So yeah. that was that's kind of what I sort of had in me as as the book was now being written in this 
fourth iteration, you know, which I was really happy with after I read the audio version. I'm glad it, it got to stage four, you know. Can you explain? I thought you did a beautiful job. And I think when people hear about quantum physics, their eyes either glaze over or they immediately go to sort of like, oh, pseudoscience, even though that's like, this is the, these are the frontiers of science and our understanding of like our relationships affect matter, right? Or the, the, we have this innate or this ability to affect, I can't even explain it. I'll leave it to you. But can you talk about sort of this, the potential of energy and then how we are bringing it down into the world and the, the possibilities and probabilities yeah, absolutely. And it's really important, I think, what you're saying about, you know, some people might find it way out there or too much or, and certainly, you know, I, I work in lots of different worlds. So, you know, one of the worlds is the world of academics and science and, you know, and some academics will say, you know, why are you making a proposal that isn't absolutely proven to be true? And I said, well, it's for people to explore things and see how it sits with them. And yeah. it's not, you know, and so so I referred a very hard one empirical science in the realm of energy flow, that is physics, the study of energy things like electrons and photons, and then try to correlate that with and finding the common ground with a view of the mind as what's called an emergent property, which is a mathematical term. You know, something is arising from the interaction of elements of a system, and that system science says there is emergence. So the proposal from 30 years ago was that the mind is an emergent property of energy flow that has lots of different aspects to it. One is subjective experience, the felt texture of being alive. The other might be consciousness, Certainly a third one is information processing. Like if I say, hello, Elise, and you say, hello, Dan, you know, that's energy flow that's symbolic in nature. We're greeting each other with hello. You know, if we spoke Spanish, we'd say hola, you know, which would be different, but it would still be energy in a formation that's symbolizing something, that's information. And then there's a self-regulatory process called self-organization that assembles this regulation of how this unfolding occurs. Anyway, that's a long story, but the bottom line is from that definition of mind, you could actually then say what a healthy mind was. So I'd been working with that for 30 years. So it was pretty natural to go to physicists and say, here's the proposal that seems to be true. The mind is an emergent property of energy. You are an expert in energy. What's the science of energy? And then they say, well, energy, am I drilling down saying, what is it? What is it? Energy, they say, is the movement from possibility to actuality, basically along this probability graph where you can go from wide open possibility, which is the lowest probability, to, you know, these areas of limited, you know, possibility, which is higher probability to absolute certainty. Like if we had a million words we shared, and I'm thinking one of them, your chance of knowing is one out of a million. So that's pretty low probability, one out of a million, near zero. Once I say ocean, it's 100%. You know I said ocean, I said ocean. It's become an actual from a pool of possible. And then if there were just five oceans, I was about to say, Pacific, Atlantic, et cetera, you would have a one out of five chance of knowing. So that's like a little a plateau that's like a filter. And there's only five actualities that might emerge from that filtering plateau. So mm. once this graph, I was with these 150 physicists and I drew out this graph, I said, is this what you mean? And they go, well, that's a way you would visually depict it. We don't usually do that, but sure, that's what we mean. <laughs> and then I said, well, here's this practice I've been doing called the wheel of awareness where I'm exploring people's mental experience of integrating consciousness, where you integration you can define as differentiating things in a system and linking them. So with my patients and then my students and then workshop participants, you know, I would have them integrate consciousness. And now I've done it with 50,000 people in person before the viral pandemic. And the results fit that graph. And it looks like, in fact, a thought would be like a peak on this graph of an actuality. 
thinking would be just beneath the peak. A certain state of mind would be like a filtering plateau. And then when you get way down to the bottom, what the quantum physicists call, you know, the quantum vacuum or the sea of potential, it's the generator of diversity. It's as Arthur Zions, the emeritus quantum physicist from Amherst calls it, it's the formless source of all form. And then it correlates exactly with what all these people have said, pure awareness in the hub of this wheel feels like to them, timeless, open, expansive, sense of love, connection for some God, this feeling of being at home, peace, joy, over and over and over again. People have never meditated before. They feel connected and they feel this sense of love. So it, you know, as a scientist, it was just fascinating to give you know, a standardized stimulus, if you will, the wheel of awareness practice, do it all over the planet, get people from all sorts of backgrounds, thousands and thousands of people to say what they were experiencing and find these similar experiences, no matter what their background was. From a scientific point of view, that's an interesting data set. Then I went looking for what kind of science of the mind could explain it. So then, of course, you go to brain science. Well, nothing really helps us understand the timelessness of that hub of the wheel. But when you get to physics, you find out that we live in these two realms, according to physicists, this isn't me making this up. In fact, the Nobel prize was given this year for one aspect mm -hmm. of this in physics, you know, where in the Newtonian realm of large objects, like these bodies we live in or the planet we live on, you know, Isaac Newton, 350 years ago, figured out certain properties that are true, and they have mathematical equations that can predict you know, the location of properties and things like gravity and stuff like that. But when you get to small things, like the size of an electron or a photon, those subatomic-sized things are micro-states, small states, and they're probability fields. They aren't the noun-like entities we have, like the body we have is like a thing. We can weigh it, walk around with it and stuff. But energy in the form of electron is a probability field and there is no noun. Right. It's a verb. And in that verb-like realm of the microstate world, which we've been able to study for about 100 years, the idea of separation of time and space like we have in the Newtonian realm doesn't really apply. In fact, there is no time in the quantum realm. There's no what's called arrow of time or directionality of change for all sorts of different reasons. But the, the issue is that we have these two realms and just like you and I can go walking in a park in the air and on top of the ground, we can also dive into a lake and it's a different property to be swimming than to be walking. And no one freaks out and says, oh my God, there's the water realm and there's the land realm. How could this be? <laughs> what's going on here? You know, But we do have a microstate realm of timelessness and a macrostate realm of being time bound. So wild. I mean, and this is why I think, and you you are take, you go to great lengths to talk about this, but you think about, and everyone I think can relate or touch this, this idea, the chaos of creation, right? Like this idea that every single, pos everything is possible and it hasn't been yet transmitted or transformed into words, thoughts, ideas, constructs. And that is an overwhelming idea, right? Chaos is the formation of creation, and yet it is scary. And as you mentioned, the other side of that is a fixed certainty, 100% probability. And when we think about ourselves, you, we, you see this in people too, become more atrophied or fixed in their identity, right? More predictable, more stuck on sort of this opposite end of creative chaos, wanting to control a world that doesn't really want to be controlled but denying the reality that there's this sort of chaotic base to each and every one of us. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's that drive to have some kind of predictability, you know, because why? Because that gives us a sense of certainty so that we can feel like there's going to be some kind of safety. If you can yeah. predict what's going to happen with certainty, then you're more likely to survive, you know? So, so it's not that there's anything wrong with that, but what it does is it makes us vulnerable to, you can call it nounifying, to making things into being like a fixed entity, when in fact there's also, you know, the quality of verb-like, what you're calling chaos, verb-like potentiality and unfolding and, and emergence that 
you know, if you're a, if you're someone who wants to really know for certain, how is it, or as the artist Rashid calls it a flimsy fantasy of certainty, you know, when you let go of that flimsy fantasy, which is trying to help you feel safe, but when you let go of it, what happens is instead of fearing uncertainty, you come to realize that the synonym for uncertainty is freedom and possibility. Mm -hmm. And that's where, well, in the interconnected book, you know, I talk about this way as a human family with 8 billion of us now, we have a lot, you know, a lot of us to do this work. But when you allow yourself to go on this journey of life and let go of the understandable drive for certainty that nounifies you into a self that's called Elise or a self that's called Dan, that's a fixed thing, you know, and it's why I, I put on the bottom of my screen these days, ABCD, you know, a body called Dan, because, you know, what's present on an internet call is not just an entity, Dan Siegel, you know, it, it's just a body there that people call Dan, but what happens in the communication, the relationship is a verb like unfolding. And, you know, we don't know exactly where it's going to go. Even this conversation I'm having with yeah. you, we don't know where it's going to go. And if we, you and I participate fully, then we'll be changed because of what happens in these next few minutes. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. It's so interesting. My dad's a physician. My mom's a nurse. I grew up literally working in the hospital and filing charts and thinking about the body and its material reality. And I'm not a scientist by any means. But it's so interesting. This is the foundation, right, of our medical complex and this matter matter changes matter and this sort of disavowal of energy, right? And it's interesting reading that your, your big – awakening came from falling off a horse and knocking yourself unconscious because I fell off a horse this summer and I broke my neck and I knocked myself unconscious and I was fine, a walking miracle. But I ended up with like a, at the same time, diagnosed almost simultaneously with a, with something called microscopic colitis and went, worked with the gastroenterologist, yada, yada, yada. What seemingly cured me or what the only thing that really helped me was the work of two energy healers. And I don't, it's like a, a conversation for another day and a longer story, but having just gone through this experience where I was begging for steroids, like begging my doctor for steroids, he wouldn't give me steroids. Something happened that is, was not perceptible to me. That wasn't like a biological mechanism that finally brought me relief and I don't really understand it either but it's just not part of our what, world right what, what so, happened can you share in, in, in terms of the energy well, work well you're bringing it up like something you know fantastic and some people might use miraculous happened what what happened to I mean this is so so strange I mean I think that I hadn't I think I was you're gonna think I'm I'm nuts but we have enough mutual friends who can attest that I'm not but I think I, I think it was like a an entity I think I had like a dark energy not in me but like attacking me and the reasons that I think that are long and varied but I'd been doing all of this work on my neck energetically I've been having like persistent neck pain and then I think I sort of had it removed and then I fall off a horse one month later and break my neck and was fine. But then it was in my gut and I, I feel like I was trying to digest it. It just moved, it relocated. I had no, the neurosurgeon put me in a neck brace for a month, but I had no other, there were no other interventions. And then I ended up with six months of this microscopic colitis and this woman came over and worked on me. And the next day, I was fine. All of my energy restored. She had her hands 
on your- Some hands on me chanting comes from like a long line of healers in South America. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And she confirmed for me that I'd like picked up an ent this en energy in my 20s that was sucking out all of my like stealing my life force. And mm. I don't know. Who knows? All I can yeah, say is suddenly I was like, I can walk. And anyway. Oh. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, you know, to be truly scientific means to be truly open minded. You yeah. Know, and to realize that not everything that's real is visible. Yeah. You know, and certainly when you get acupuncture, you know, there are these meridians of energy flow that when they get changed, huge things can happen. So, yeah. and, you know, even when I was in medical school, it was not a part of the regular curriculum, but a few of us took a course from a healer from Japan and we learned how to do energy work using our hands without ever touching the body. Yeah. And you can move energy around the, the patient's body in ways and you could feel when there was a stuck place. And, you know, we didn't talk about it much because people would have thought it was woo woo. But you could feel when you when you received it yourself that there was yeah. something going on. Who knows exactly what it is? But I mean, the studies anyway of acupuncture show, even though we can't tell exactly what it is, it's doing something very big. Yeah. yeah. So no. And you write about you know, you talk about sort of the five inputs of the body that we all know so well. And but the the fact that we can we of course we can read each other's energy and perceive people's energy. That's an undeniable reality. And yet it's not something that we really discuss. Like it's easy to sort of understand when someone's upset, regardless of how they might be visibly presenting. But it's not really this a dimension that we understand, talk about or have honored. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you just take the simple English word connection, you know, and you say, well, what is really a connection made of? Like, you know, when we get disconnected from our body, the body can do all sorts of things. And it's not a sense of harmony that things can get stuck. We can have pain. We can feel numb. You know, you can go to either extreme. And yet when we talk about being connected to your body, there's a kind of freedom that happens with that. Or talk about a relationship. You know, you can be in a family and feel connected to your family members, but you can also be in a family and feel not connected to them. You know, and so what does it mean to have a connection or not have a connection? In a way, it's the way energy swirls become woven with each other without losing their integrity. Mm. So, so in a family where people are too merged, and you you feel like there's something not right here. Something is really, people are too close. What you can tell if you take a little bit of a step back often is that there isn't an honoring of the differentiated individual that's there who then becomes linked in the sharing of communication where each one is hearing the other, they're being influenced by the other, so they're resonating, but they're not mimicking the other in the sense that they don't have to become identical to the other, which would be the case of excessive merger and on the other side of it, if they're not sharing communication, they can, someone can speak and they can just act as if the other person didn't speak. And that's a massive lack of linkage. So when you look at it that way, you can say there's a fundamental process of differentiating, of being different or unique or specialized on the one hand, and then linked on the other. And when that balance of differentiation and linkage it doesn't happen, then you have all sorts of troubles of chaos and rigidity. And that may be one thing that you experienced, you know, that's that the healer was picking up. I think it's states of integration. That's a word you can use to define this balance of differentiation and linkage. And that what we do in healing is we're promoting the integration of energy flow within the mm -hmm. person and within the person and the world of other people and the world of nature. Hmm. I love that. And I think as you were just talking about sort of that the emergence or the lack of coherence or lack of cohesion or connection that we feel with other people, that's sort of the sixth sense, right? This this not necessarily underdeveloped, but maybe not as well understood. I think you described it as sort of the other senses teach us how do we relate with our world or an environment. And then the sixth sense is sort of the understanding of what we ourselves are feeling. It's that that inner work 
which I would argue many of us are disconnected from. I think most people have no idea what they're feeling. It's so true. Right. It's so true. And, you know, it's interesting that 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 sixth sense, that interoception sense of the body, whether it's the still body or the motion body, however we're feeling the body, one way would be like to feel right now your heart, whether you could feel the beating or not, just to focus attention on the heart, you know, and the studies are very clear when you actually place your attention on the heart region and then you allow that attention to stream the sensations of that region into your awareness, you get a very different physiological state of calm and clarity than when you're distracting, just doing all sorts of other things. So, you know, the, the focus on the heart is one example. Focus on the breath would be another one. You're always breathing, of course, just like your heart is always beating. But when you focus attention on the breath, and bring that sensation of the breath into awareness. That's called focal attention. Lots of things start to change in a positive way. Now, now some people, let's say, who've had like an accident where they almost, you know, drown or something, you can get a panic attack from that. So it's not for everybody, but in general, for most people, it's a very calming thing. So you could say, well, why would the focus of my attention change anything? Well, actually, attention is this process that directs energy flow. So you can say where attention goes, neural firing flows and neural connection grows. So literally, you are like a neurosculptor when you learn to use your attention, especially with awareness, which holds it in place for long enough for it to actually have a more significant impact. But also, once things are in awareness, you have a choice on knowing, am I really focusing attention where I want it to be? Oh, I'm distracted. How do I return to the focus? And then what's interesting about it is when you add that focus of attention to other things like opening awareness up, so it's not always lost in what you're attending to, but you start sensing this wider receptive state, and then you build into that a third component, building kindness. Those three, focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention, Studies show that when you do that, you get all sorts of amazing changes in the body. You reduce stress hormone, you improve the immune system, you allow your heart to be healthier, actually. You, you actually reduce inflammation in the body. You talked about microcolitis, you know, you can microscopic colitis. You can reduce inflammation by these practices that include these three pillars. And you do that by changing the regulatory molecules sitting on top of DNA. So what you do with your mind actually changes the molecules of health, even the enzyme telomerase that repairs and maintains the ends of your chromosomes. So it slows the aging process. So when you do a regular three pillar practice, what I call it, you know, opening awareness, focusing attention, building kind intention, you, there's a practice I do every day. It's called the wheel of awareness, but you can do however you want to do it. This happens to have all three in one practice, you know, you actually start changing your body's health status based Mm -hmm. on what you do with your mind. And then when you put connection in there and you realize, well, if you're being told by society that you're a solo self, you're just separate, and you're this noun-like separate entity, it kind of digs in you as something's not quite right, even if you're not aware of that feeling, and it starts creating stress in us because we are built to be connected to each other and to nature. And so this is where the good news is, even though a lot of the problems we face today may be due to this constricted sense of self as separate, we can course correct and change that as a human family and open it up to really seeing the self as much broader than the body, much bigger than just the individual and a part of this larger, I, I say it's a me in your body and a we in your relationship. So it's a we You know, it's just a fun way to remember what an intra-connected self really is. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids, 
mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. There's so much conversation about killing the ego and yada, yada, yada. And, but this idea of like the solo self or this idea that we all are uniquely gifted or uniquely positioned or that there's there's a lot of beauty and value in our individuality and that the idea isn't necessarily to is not to destroy that it's to just reconnect it to a, a, a bigger collective identity right i mean i'm i'm not misunderstanding think, that right no i think it's beautifully <laughs> said elise and i think i think it's so important because you're describing the the need to realize that yes, we have a body and we do have an inner aspect of self. And this was part of the challenge of writing the book was to say, you know, this, this view of interconnection is not saying, oh, there is no self, get rid of the ego, self is an illusion. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that you have an inner center of experience. So let's just say what, from viewing the different sciences, what do we mean by self? We mean a spa, S-P-A. It's a sensation center, it's a perspective center, and an agency center that is one center of experience that has the three qualities of subjective sensation, the feel of it, perspective, you know, the point of view, and agency, what are you acting on behalf of, right? So that spa in modern culture, we stick it in just the individual. And when it's only an individual, let's name that the solo self. Well, when you expand that sense of self, you're saying we're not getting rid of the inner aspect of spa. You have a sensation, perspective, and agency on behalf of the body, for sure. So we're not saying get rid of that. We're saying that your center of experience is much broader than the brain, bigger than the body. It is including the whole of the body and your relationships with whom, with, I guess it's whom or who, who would it be with with who? It would be with people and the planet, you know? No, absolutely. And it, it's interesting because at the end, when you were talking about the work of Kagan, Keegan and Leahy and this idea that we have sort of this three, the three stages, the socialized mind, the self-authoring mind, and the self-transforming mind. And I want to talk about those with you, but it, it feels like Everyone, and we're having a collective crisis right now, or we're in the midst of like ongoing crises, right? That seem to be sort of breaking us down on a global level and reminding us that we are all on one boat here. We're all on one planet, but that your accident, for example, or we see this in people's lives with loss, change, transition, sort of this, a fracturing that has to happen in some ways to the self, to those ideas of certainty or predictability in life. 
to get people to open? Like, do you feel like in your practice you see this happening to people on an individual and now we're seeing it on a collective social level as well? Yeah, I do. I, I really do. I, I, I think the reason this conversation you and I are having here needs to be a conversation that could benefit everyone is that, you know, we have this thing and Leahy and Kian talk about this, you know, about the immunity to change, this resistance to trying on new ways of being once we're adults. You know, mm -hmm. kids may already know this. Adolescents may begin to forget it. And then adults, we've forgotten it altogether in modern culture. What are we forgetting? That in fact, who we are is more than just our individual bodies. So this conversation is so important for humanity to have because business as usual in modern culture has not worked. Whether you're looking at social injustice, you're looking at misinformation and polarization, you're looking at the way we handle our, our relationship with nature and the loss of biodiversity and the climate catastrophe we're in the middle of, you know, all those things can be attributed to, if not just worsened by the view of a solo self. And we have a limited amount of time, but we still have time to actually change the way we conduct ourselves on earth. And you can say, well, I don't want to accept the fact that the human mind has created these problems. Well, you may not want to accept it, but all the sciences point to that being the truth. So then you may say, well, I feel too guilty. I just want to watch TV and, you know, distract myself. Well, that's okay to watch TV, but we have some work to do. And it's hard work because it is just what you're saying. It's getting over the immunity to change. And what I hope, you know, this view of interconnected can do is say, you're not just, you know, connected to people around you. You're not just interconnected, even with nature, inter meaning between. You are nature. That's the intra part of it. That word came from a time I was on a retreat with some system scientists from MIT and we were out in the forests of Colorado by our individual selves, but we came to experience this connectedness. And when we came out of the forest, everyone said, oh, I was interconnected and interdependent and interlaced. And then it was my turn. And I couldn't use the interword because the experience was, I was the creeks, water. I was the trees, trunks, I was, the sky and the clouds. I was the body called Dan. I was all of it. And it was connected for sure, but it wasn't between, it was within. So I just said to the group, I said, well, I guess I was intra-connected. And then when I typed it out, you know, on the computer, when I finally got back out of the forest, it kept on changing it to interconnected. And there was no <laughs> word in English, it turns out, for the connectivity within the whole. So this is where, you know, Interconnection is just a simple word, or we is a simple word. We are a me in a body. We don't get rid of that. We are a we in our relationships with human beings, with, with the whole of nature. And so that me plus we, you don't lose the integrity of either one by combining them as a we. You know, you get this fun little word. So that's that's the journey is how do we actually, with due speed, because this is a timely issue, start to live in modern culture, which has taken over the planet, basically, live in a way that is really about the truth of who we are, that we are a me and we are a we, and that if we lived that way, we wouldn't treat each other as enemies. We would treat each other as relatives. You know, you don't get along with every relative in the same way, but if they're in your family, they're your family. And if yeah. we then saw all of nature as the family of nature, you know, we would treat earth not like a trash can, but a sanctuary. And, and we would do this together. And we are incredibly collaborative. We're incredibly creative. And yes, we can use competition. But what we can do in our competition is make it so we're competing to really deal with, you know, diseases and famine and all the problems we face. So when you win the competition, everybody benefits. Yeah. You know, that's well, possible. And you you brought up the word competition and you I loved how you wrote you wrote the stories of our lives are not only what we say in our mind and to others but also how we live our lives. The layered stories of our life become embedded in the actions we carry out in the world. 
when, as a community, we share the foundations of these stories, when the values and meanings, interpretations, and beliefs are conveyed collectively in communications with one another, culture is created. And we think about that, sort of the great cultural lie of scarcity, competitiveness, that we are naturally inured against each other, that if you have something, it means I don't get it. That's one of the great myths of our culture that's persistent, right? When really, as we reevaluate science and look back at who we have been historically and who we are now, we're far more conciliatory, collaborative, and loving than we ever give ourselves credit for. Like the individualist, that myth has been so enduring. The rugged individualist, et cetera, dominates our consciousness in a way that crowds out all of the other potential that we have. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting, at least when you say that, because you can say, well, why do we tend to do that? Because you're absolutely right. It gets crowded out and we tend to do that. Why do we tend to? We don't have to, but why do we tend to? And one way to say it is it's like this cycle where scarcity induces this separation and in the scarcity and separation we start to get very quote self-protective of our family of people like us and we've had you know 50 million years it looks like a history of in-group out-group distinction in the primate nervous system so we quickly say who's in my in-group i'll protect you but if you're in my out-group i'm going to shun you or worse you know, and and so that's our that's our genetic legacy. You know, we probably survived by small bands of primates that hung out with each other and were collaborative. And then when we became humans, we have this thing called allo parenting. Allo means other parenting. You know, the caregiver, meaning unlike other mammals, you know, we share caregiving roles for the infant. We we let others take care of it besides mothers, for example. Now that's a big deal because then we had to see the mind of each other. And once you could start sensing the intention, where the attention was, what's in the awareness, you know, what's going on, the feelings, the memories, the perceptions of another human being, you started to develop maps of the mind, basically. Those are all mental states. And then you could even map out your own mind. So things got really complex really fast in human history. Now, we're only around about 200,000 years compared to 50 million years, you know, of these primates, our ancestors. So, you know, now you've got the situation where you have really intricate capacity for compassion, empathy, insight, for mapping out time, thinking about past, present, future, asking existential questions like, why am I here? How did I get here? What's the purpose of being here? And now we're uh, probably pretty distinct from certainly this dog sleeping here by my feet you know, and probably, you know, other primates. And and so now you have this high, very complex hierarchy of social systems that we live in. And in modern culture, then when there's scarcity, you start using all that architecture to say, oh, I know who I am. I know who my family is. I just need to get entities, stuff, so that you know, I, if I can hold on to the stuff, because I can't hold on to a process, I can't hold on to a verb, I can hold on to a noun. And with all this existential angst I have, at least if I nounify things and say, the meaning of life is to have stuff. And I'll build a fence around my stuff so it doesn't mix up with your stuff. And if there's scarcity, you won't even steal my stuff. You may not even know I have the stuff that I have. It's behind the fence, you know? And so now we're living behind the fence and the people in the in-group are having fun behind the fence and we don't want to know the people outside the fence. And it's the in-group, out-group history we have. But nounification intensifies that because when you have an identity as an entity, you get the illusion of certainty. Mm. And that illusion of certainty gives you a sense of safety. So when there's scarcity and you feel unsafe, this is why we nounify. And this, I think, is at the heart of why we have a solo self, an entity-like self only in the body that's equated with the individual. And so as we loosen that up and let it go, and certainly the reason I had Keegan Leahy's work 
about the immunity that changes, you know, we have to work not just with children and adolescents, but with adults. And they've done fantastic work with adult change. And at the same time, we have to go beyond even the notion that, oh, I'm a aware individual. We, I think we need to go throughout all of humanity and start saying, how do we get back to exactly what you're saying, that we are incredibly collaborative? And mm -hmm. the, the good news is that all the studies of compassion, of awe, of gratitude, these are previously called self-transcendent emotions, but they're really something you can call self-expanding emotions. All, all the studies show that brings individual well-being as well as collective well-being. So we kind of know the direction. It's filled with mm -hmm. all gratitude and compassion. And we can have collaboration as the heart of who we are. But as we become more verb-like, there's going to be less ownership of identity. There's mm -hmm. participation in identity yeah. rather than ownership. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. Even that subtle linguistic shift from expanding, from transcending to expanding is so critical, I think, because it, it grounds you in the body of let's get bigger, let's open ourselves up, let's lift this trap door. And because this idea of transcendence, you know, that also is an old, very old cultural idea of we have to get off of this planet and get to heaven. We have to overcome nature. We have to transcend ourselves and our base desires to get to God. And it's sort of one of the root causes, I think, of why we perceive nature as something to dominate and pillage and own rather than being part of nature, even though we are linguistically not part of nature, according to the dictionary, but expanding rather than transcending. Like there's nothing to transcend. Like we are here. This is it. This is, this is, I'm not saying this is the end all be all because I believe in energy and I believe that there's more, but there's no going somewhere else. <laughs> Exactly. Well, this is this is the interesting shift. And it's even building on what you're saying, you know, it's the shift from making something happen, mm. where you control it, or letting something happen, where you release it. And, and the interesting thing about just these last 30 years of, you know, being on this journey is, is there is a state of 
you know, openness of receptivity, this hub of the wheel, if you want to have a metaphor for it, you know, which looks like you're really tapping into that plane of possibility, this generator of diversity, which can be acronymized as G-O-D. You know, this generator of diversity is the plane of possibility. It's this quantum vacuum, I think. And, and it's like a portal through which integration is released to unfold in the world. So you don't have to say, oh my God, how do I become the you know, orchestra conductor and make this life you know, become integrated? No, it's about getting that stuff out of the way where you let it come through you. And the vital force of life really is love. So, mm. and I'm saying this as a scientist from all these people who've reported this in the hub of the wheel, it feels as if the, the tapestry of life is about connection and love. And then when you begin to just drop into that and let that come through the body you were born into, all sorts of things change. Like for this body called Dan, writing this book, Interconnected, has changed my whole stance towards death, you mm. know, because it, it, it took the noun-like part of self, of, of rigidifying self, and the fear of death, of course, because the body gets about 100 years to live, and that's it. And then if you think that's what the self is, is just the body, of course, you're freaking out about dying. But once you drop out of that illusion of separation and open up to the interconnected nature of things across not only space, but time, then the fact that this body gets 100 years is just one part of a much bigger story of who you are. Yeah. Oh, I believe I'm with you so wholeheartedly and regardless of people's beliefs about the other side or whether we exist, we continue to exist after our physical bodies are gone. You know, one of the other powerful points of this book and this idea of self is that we're engaging with each other, right? We're, we live in each other's minds. We live in each other's memories. There's a legacy of each of us, an imprint of all of us all over the place and other people and in the world, regardless of whether we're physically present. And it's hard to say, it's hard to distinguish, oh, that's Dan's book from Dan, or those are Dan's thoughts, not Dan. We get so trapped in that material reality, we forget about this broader idea of who we are and how we show up in the world. Beautiful. Yeah, it's so beautiful because imagine, and this will be my deepest dream, you know, and even this morning I woke up after a wonderful dinner last night, but the, the conversation across generations, my 93-year-old mom was there and a 25-year-old young man was there and, you know, we were talking about all sorts of things about the world and history and stuff. But it was a very painful conversation about where humanity is at this moment and where we might go in a negative way in the, in the very near future. And so it was a very heavy conversation and I had some really rough dreams. But when I woke up, I thought, you know, it's like, how do we approach these challenges? And I have a dear friend named Joanna Macy, who, mm. you know, has been an activist for a long time. And I was with her recently and and she was talking about how how many of the activists that she knows are feeling exhausted and burning out and and we talked about the difference between approaching things in the world that need to be dealt with in a positive way as a threat versus if we shifted our mindset and instead took it on as a challenge mm -hmm. because a threat leads you to fight 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 and it's exhausting over time or to flee, and that's exhausting over time, or to freeze, meaning you don't know whether to fight or to flee, you tighten up your muscles and it's exhausting. Or the fourth F, fight, flee, freeze, the fourth of those is to faint, to feel totally helpless and collapse. Those are all exhausting in their own unique ways. So what I said to Joanna is I said, well, what if you thought of it as a challenge or even thought of it as a dance partner and you took on the challenges and dance with it. You said, what's the music of today? And what that gives you a chance to do, first of all, is make sure you don't burn out. If you have the courage to care, you need to really take care of the inner experience of being someone who cares so that you can thrive as you really strive for making changes in the world. And then when you do that, you know, then it becomes like a dance partner 
these challenges. So rather than dreading them, you say, okay, bring it on. What's the dance for today? And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that's my hope really for this conversation is that, you know, especially, you know, we go through this lifespan journey of how the self is shaped into separateness in modern culture in these different stages, looking at brain development and attachment and all sorts of things. But the bigger issue is, okay, now what do you do with that? You know, how do you take that and say, okay, I see all the moments that culture through my parents, through my teachers, through my workplace, through my friends, through the social media, through the larger, you know, press, you know, how does it keep on making the word self as equal to the individual? And even someone listening to us now might say, well, that's an obvious thing. The self and the individual are synonyms. They're the same thing. So what we're saying is no. You know, what if you had a center of experience that you could have an identity lens and you could focus this close up and say, yeah, I have a body. I'm not denying the body. I'm not even trying to transcend the body. I'm trying to expand my experience of self. So I say, I do have a body. Now I widen that lens like on a camera. And I said, wow, I'm connections to people I know, to people I don't know. People are not even like me. Maybe people share different opinions than I have. Then to all of humanity. And then to widen it even further and say, I'm part of all living beings. And then widen it even further to say, I'm a part of all living beings that have ever existed or will ever exist. And then when you need to, you narrow that lens down. So when you get in your car and you see a red light, you know, you do, as I say, you know, you <laughs> press on the brakes. So you're not one with everything in the intersection, you know. So you need to be able to adjust this, you know, identity lens. So in a way, Interconnected is a book that introduces the idea of an identity lens, introduces the idea that you're empowered to adjust it as needed. And if we keep it excessively focused on the individual as the only source of self, then we're going to be in deep trouble on Earth. And it's, you know, it's a win-win thing because you will benefit individually by having this lens that you can adjust. People around you and nature around you will benefit and the whole of Earth is going to benefit. That's really heady stuff I know. And he guides us all through it and interconnected and I think we're really at the very beginning it's interesting because Albert Einstein keeps coming up both I think as we would imagine him as he is today sort of this grandfather of science and our understanding of the world and someone who could articulate how matter and energy work And he's also someone, and Dan quotes him a few times, that is pointing to the fact that we are at the very beginning of our understanding of how the world functions. He has one quote from him here where Albert Einstein says, A human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space, He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. So there we go. That's Albert Einstein, who gave us a formula for energy. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. And he's also articulating a much, much bigger version of our reality and our intra-connectedness. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. 
please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.